Amen. Thank you, worship team. And thank you, church. So we are continuing to walk through the gospel of John. And so I would encourage you to uh, get your copy of God's word and follow along. And here's the other piece of this. Whether you're using a physical Bible or you're using a digital Bible, you need to kind of get your fingers limbered up and ready to go because we're going to be looking at a lot of the gospel of John this morning. Um, now, there's a caveat I need to give right off of the bat, right? I, I have to give this warning to you, um, and it's the one thing that they always say, never apologize when you're speaking in public. Uh, but I'm going to start by then not apologizing, but just telling you, we are going to read a significant chunk of the gospel of John today. Now, what they say is the reason you shouldn't do that is because you lose your audience. But here's the thing. This is not a performance. You are not an audience. We together are the people of God submitting ourselves to the word of God. And therefore, I'm not worried about losing you in a lot of text. But I do want to encourage you if we're going to be looking at a lot of text, uh, that you kind of prepare yourself in advance and that you be ready, engaged in this, not evaluating my performance, but looking at the word. Now, this is perfectly acceptable. We have long chunks of text a lot and we don't read all of them and that's great. That's great when we can just summarize and kind of walk through it, but, but there's something about this text that as I was praying through it this week, I said, we need to read this. Now, I'm going to break it up a little bit, but we're going to be starting in verse 17 of chapter 5, and by the time we're done, we're going to be at verse 71 of chapter 6. And I want us to understand that as we're doing this, we're, our, our purpose is not to be entertained this morning. Our purpose is to be changed. Our purpose is to be transformed by the word that God has given. I also issue that caveat because I think there's a mistake that we make a lot of times today. Uh, and that mistake is that we imagine that the Bible is about us. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is for us. The Bible is good for us. The Bible is a gift to us, but the Bible is not about us. How many of you remember, and some of you are kids, so it's not that hard. How many of you remember the first time you realized that your parents were actual people? No, 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 like, like when, when you realized, wait a second, these people who I thought existed for me actually have interests outside of me. Do you remember that moment when you realized that? Like, wait a second, there's, there's more going on here than just me, right? I think that's the experience we're all meant to have when we come to the word. Sometimes when we look at the word, we do indeed see God himself speaking to us. We see indeed the fact that there is good news, the gospel for us. But sometimes we look at the word and what we see is not about us. That's what we see in this passage that we're going to look at. The first thing that we see is this incredible connection between Jesus and his father. Start with me in verse 17. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. Now this, 
This is something that, that Pastor Michael looked at with you last week. The work that Jesus is talking about is where he healed a man on the Sabbath. He told him to pick up his mat and to walk. And there were people mad at him because that wasn't legal to do on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, but God's still working. My father's still working, therefore I am working. And this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son so that all people may honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now, let's stop for just a second. What we have here is Jesus making a pretty radical claim. It's not about you. What what Jesus is saying is what I'm doing is not about you. It's about my relationship with my father. I'm seeing him work. Frankly, I don't care if you don't get it because the son is following the father's work. Now, all this matters because here we are, front row seat to what's happening And Jesus says, it's not about you. This is about Jesus' relationship with his father. This is about his unity with his father. Remember, the Jews got it. They recognized that in calling God his own father, he was making himself equal to God. This is a statement of who Jesus is. The son is following the father's work. Now, that comes into play here in just a second in an even greater way. But we need to understand this right first and foremost, that this is about more than just you and I. But it does impact us. Look at this, verse 24. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For just as the father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this because the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says that as we're on the outside looking in at his relationship to his father, there is going to be this moment where while it's not about us, there is going to be something for us. That those who are on the outside looking in at this relationship have a choice. And it's a choice between life and judgment. 
Seeing how it is that Jesus interacts with his father is meant to call us to something. Seeing Jesus doing the father's work is meant to call from us a response. When you figured out that your parents were their own people and they weren't just existing for your benefit. By the way, has everybody figured that out, just so we're clear? Some of us may not have figured that out yet. If you haven't yet, just understand this. This is good. When we do a family commitment service together at Edgewood, right? So when we have uh, families that come up and they have young children, they want to commit themselves to raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and the church commits to them, hey, we're going to walk alongside you in that. One of the questions that we ask parents to to affirm, uh, one of the things we ask them to affirm is that the best thing they can do for their kids is to love one another well. I think maybe I should strengthen that language a little bit. One of the best things you can do for your kids is to love your spouse more than you love your kids. You and I aren't going to get in the middle of Jesus' relationship with the Father. We're not going to transcend it. We're not going to supersede it. It's in that divine connection. It's in that divine relationship, indeed, that we find our hope. Because Jesus says, when you see me and the Father being one, when you see that the Father and I are equal and do not need you, it's then that you realize there's a hope of life here. There's a hope here for you that transcends your limited experience. Now that is surprising to the Jews, but it also is surprising to us because we live in a day and age in which Christianity has been primarily proclaimed to us as a gospel of self-improvement. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares for you. These are true statements. But what is oftentimes not true is what we take away from that. Jesus loves me, therefore I should never suffer. Jesus cares for me, therefore I should be rich. Jesus heals me, therefore I should never be sick. What we've done is we've put ourselves in the middle of something that's not about us. When we misunderstand this, we misunderstand a great deal. We misunderstand why Jesus is doing what he's doing. John records very few miracles. And the miracles that he records, he does so for a purpose, to validate the teaching. Now, how uncaring is it for a guy who can heal blind people to not heal every blind person? Well, if it's about them, then it's very uncaring. How uncaring is it for Jesus to tell one man to get up and walk when there's a whole bunch of people gathered around the pool who are waiting for healing and he doesn't heal them? Well, it must be uncaring. Unless it's not about them. It's not about that. It's not about now. It's not about here. It's not about the limited horizon that we consider life. It's about eternity. It's about something bigger. The son is following the father's work, and we need to understand that that work takes place on a much grander scale than the 60, 70, 80, 20, 15 years that you and I may have. God's work transcends that. 
We get a picture of that in what he says next because the son doesn't just follow the father's work. He also fulfills the father's word. Now, this word is something that existed long before first century AD when Jesus shows up amongst the Jews. God had been revealing himself through the scripture all along. And Jesus says that had a purpose. It was pointing to me. If I testify about myself, verse 31, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. And I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I'm doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time. You have not seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. These scriptures testify about Jesus, he says. You're searching the word, thinking that that's the point. Your quiet time in the morning, you Pharisees, is not the point. Jesus is the point. The study that they are engaging in in the scripture is is study that should have been opening their eyes to the fact that Jesus Christ is the one that this is all about. It's not about them. It's about him. Now, we wouldn't make that same mistake, would we? We, we wouldn't evaluate our reading. I got a lot out of that. I didn't get anything out of that. We wouldn't look at a worship service and say, whew, Holy Ghost goosebumps. Or wow, band was really off this morning. We wouldn't do that. Preacher went on just a little bit too long. You guys wouldn't do that, would you? It's not about us. Jesus does the Father's work. Jesus fulfills the Father's word. Who is it about? Here's a guess. Not you. Jesus. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you. That you have no love for God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone comes, else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe? Since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. If you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? We're tempted in our study of the word to look for anything other than Jesus. We want to argue about the age of the earth. We want to argue about the end times. We want to argue about this technical theological point. We want to argue about that one. We want to argue about who's going to heaven. We want to argue about what is the criteria. We want to argue about faith. We want to argue about works. We want to argue about style of music. We want to argue about service times and styles and Sunday school spaces and all of that stuff. And it's not about us. It's about him. 
until we get that church, I'm not sure that we're going to understand the next piece. Because when we're looking at the word, we're meant to see Jesus has a relationship with the Father that does not depend on you and I. Sometimes the gospel's portrayed as something like God didn't want to be lonely, so he decided to save us. God wasn't lonely. The Son had the Father, they had the Holy Spirit, the three of them in perpetual community, perpetual union, perfection. Do you think creating you helped the perfection? No. And yet, we're invited in. Now, this is, this, is, this, is, this is important. Track with me. Jesus' relationship with his Father is not about you and I. But it is for you and I. This vertical relationship between the Son of God and the Father, while it's not about us, it is for us because it has implications for us in what the Son is doing in doing the Father's work and in what the Son is doing fulfilling the Father's word. What he is doing is building a possibility. What he is doing is establishing the framework for you and I to no longer be on the outside looking in, but to enter into that very same relationship with God. How does he do this? We see it in chapter six here. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up to a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming towards him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down, and the men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, truly this is the prophet who is to come into the world. All right, now, leaving aside that one pot of soup you made and put in the freezer and ate on for a month, how many of you have ever seen a miraculous provision of food like this? No, me neither. Five loaves and two fish. And there have been all kinds of attempts throughout history to explain this away. Well, what happened was the boy's generosity in sharing his five loaves and two fish inspired the rest of the crowd, and they all gave what they had, and they basically had the first Baptist potluck there, and it worked out great. But I don't think that's what we're being told here. The crowd recognizes that what Jesus has just done is a miracle, 
There's no human explanation. There's no generosity inspired by this little boy. What's happened is five loaves and two fish became enough to feed this massive crowd. And everybody's astonished and everybody says, because of what we've just seen, this must be what God intends. The son feeds the hungry. So the son is doing the father's work. The son fulfills the father's word. So he feeds the hungry. And they conclude, this must be the prophet. But Jesus knows something more than they know. Look at verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They didn't want Jesus. They really liked bread and fish. If you got a king that can miraculously make five loaves and two fish feed 5,000, you won't have any trouble provisioning an army to drive out the invading Romans from your land. If you've got a king who can do this kind of resource management, there's not a country on the face of the earth that could stand up to their military might. Jesus is doing the Father's work. He's fulfilling the Father's word. And clearly that means that he needs to be king and we need to be conquering. And Jesus runs away from that. His purpose is not to fill their bellies. His purpose is to save their souls. His purpose is not to establish an earthly kingdom. His purpose is to establish the kingdom of God. One that transcends those considerations. Jesus feeds the hungry but in a surprising way. But then look at this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. And after they rowed about three or four miles, time out, that's hard work, just so we're clear. They're in the middle of the storm, they're scared. And have you ever rowed three or four miles? They're wore out. They're in trouble, is the implication here. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the, shore, the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Not only does the son feed the hungry, but he also does the impossible and finds the troubled. He finds them in the midst of their terror. He finds them in the midst of their difficulty and he shows up for them. And they're, I, I've got to imagine they're ecstatic. They, they're thrilled that Jesus has showed up for them. And, and if we stop right there, that's about as much of the gospel as most of us ever get around to. Jesus feeds the hungry. Yeah, yeah, I got problems. I, I, I'm hungry. Yeah, I, I've, got, I've got things that I need Jesus to address, areas of need in my life. Jesus, come and address those areas of need. We find ourselves in trouble. We find ourselves lonely. We find ourselves confused. And Jesus shows up. And we're like the disciples, whew, glad you came when you did, Jesus. but that's not yet the point. Jesus 
comes for us. Jesus provides for us. But he's not about us. He has a relationship with the Father that is independent of our considerations. He also, in his relationship with us, is not just here to fix our problems. This shows up in the rest of this chapter. Understanding that what Jesus is here for is not predominantly to meet our needs. Jesus is not the end, or he is the end, he's not the means. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that neither Jesus or disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now this sounds really good. Who were they looking for? They're looking for Jesus. They're looking for Jesus. Right? You showed up on a Sunday morning. It might have even rained today. What did you show up for? I hope you're looking for Jesus. Because looking for Jesus is a good thing. But why? Why was the crowd looking for Jesus? Why are you looking for Jesus? They found him. He said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Why were they looking for Jesus? Because of what Jesus could do for them. Why were they looking for Jesus? Because they were hungry. Why were they looking for Jesus? Because they were troubled. Why were they looking for Jesus? Because Jesus gave them stuff. Jesus checked the boxes for them. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Work, they say. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. And Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. You came looking for Jesus. That's awesome. That's great, but why? Because what we're supposed to do is recognize that we come looking for Jesus because he is worthy of that search. We come looking for Jesus because he is the end in himself. He is not the means to us getting what we want. How many of you want to go to hell? Well, that's unanimous. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you believe, you'll have eternal life. You will not perish. That's good. It's good to want to not go to hell. How many of you have found in Christ rest for your troubled soul? Peace in the midst of the chaos that is your life. That's good. But it's not good enough. 
Jesus himself is the treasure, not the benefit that the treasure provides. Jesus himself is the object of our worship, not the feeling that the worship inspires in us. Jesus finds the trouble. Jesus feeds the hungry. This flows out of the fact that he is doing the Father's work. This flows out of the fact that he is fulfilling the Father's word. But he is the point. You may come to Jesus and find rest for your troubled soul. You may not. You may come to Jesus and find your needs being met, and you may not, but what you will find is infinitely better. You will find Christ. The crowd comes looking for bread. What sign then? This is the work of God that you believe in the one he sent. Then what sign are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? Asks the people who just ate everything they wanted the day before. All right, prove it, Jesus. We'll believe in you if you do the thing again. Just do the thing, Jesus. Jump through my hoop. It's about me. It's about my needs. Yeah. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, give us this bread always. Not just yesterday, give it now. No. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now I'm inserting something here. This is not scripture. I'm not giving you any more bread. If that's not enough for you, if the son giving life to those who believe because of what the father has given him to do, if, if eternal life is not enough for you, I'm not gonna give you any bread. You want the spectacle? You want the show? You want the performance? No. No. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They're grumbling because he said, the bread was never the point. I'm the bread. The son is the bread. I'm the bread. And they start grumbling. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last days. In the prophets it is written and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, Anyone who, has, who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. You can have bread and die. 
You can have spectacle and die. You can be entertained and die. But anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that point, the Jews argued amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus is making a metaphor and they're thinking cannibalism. Their belly's still running the show. They don't understand. And this is important for us to get. Whoops. Or not. The sun fails to provide for those who are only looking out for themselves. The sun fails to provide for those who are only looking out for themselves. Yes, he feeds the hungry. Yes, he finds the troubled. But if you're just coming to him because you're hungry or because you're troubled and you want your problems to go away, he will fail you because he's not about you. But if you come to him on his terms, he is absolutely for you. And he will grant eternal life. How do you make sense of this? How do you put this all together? So Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your, brother, your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Well, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to find out that you're not the center of everything. It's hard to realize that everything's not about you. That's tough. It's also hard to think about Jesus talking about cannibalism. And so I could see that being somewhat confusing to the disciples as well. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the son of man ascending to where he was before? The spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I spoke to you are spirit and are life, but there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. From that moment... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Look what Peter does. We've just been told, John just told us that a lot of the disciples turned back. 
A lot of people couldn't handle this idea that Jesus was the kind of Messiah who wasn't about them. They couldn't handle not see themselves walking. They didn't see that Jesus and the Father, that relationship took precedent over their relationship. They couldn't see what Jesus was talking about. And so from that moment, many of them turned away. But Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of life. You are the Holy One of God. He doesn't say, Lord, we like bread too. He doesn't say, Lord, you got us out of a spot of trouble on the lake. His focus is who Jesus is. And he recognizes that while he may not yet understand, while he may not yet grasp all of it, he recognizes Jesus is worthwhile in and of himself. He recognizes that Jesus is all he's got left. He's the only hope. The sun fails those who are seeking themselves. But he's followed by everyone who recognizes that they have no one and nothing else beside him. When Jesus is the greatest treasure, that's when we've come to know him. When we see his worth as transcending every other consideration that we might make, that's when we've finally come to recognize who he is. Can we say with Peter, Jesus, you're enough for us? Or are we still looking for all the ancillary benefits? Can we say with the 12 who did not abandon him, where else can we go? You're all we got. Church, the final thing I want you to understand this morning is actually a series of three things. The gospel's not about you, it's for you. The gospel's not about you, it's for you. Number two, Jesus is the gospel. You don't need any more than him. And finally, until you want Jesus more than you want anything else, you'll never be satisfied. Your home life will never be enough. Your church will never be good enough. Your job will never be satisfying. Your kids will be a continual source of disappointment. Until you want Jesus more than anything else, you will not be satisfied. Augustine said, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Brothers and sisters, are you looking for Jesus to solve your problems? Or are you looking for Jesus? Ponder that as you think about the gospel of John. Ponder that as you think about 
Jesus Christ. What is it that you want? We're going to have a different kind of invitation this morning. In that, we're not going to have one. What I want to encourage each of you to do is to reflect on this very long passage of Scripture and to ask what it is that you are looking for, who it is that you are treasuring. Let's pray together.